as we were talking about last week, we talked about there are four different generations that we're looking at in, in chapter two. But I wanted to highlight too that in chapter two, what we're finding is that um, it's highlighting what's being written in chapter one. Remember I said last week, chapter one, verse one, it was talking about two important statements there. Is there, there when Paul said, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth. Thank you, sir. And, um, and the knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. Important, because then, then Paul mentions, he goes, in the hope of life, which God, who never lies. Important in this particular passage, because in the, in the context, the Cretans were liars. Even to their own admission, they were called liars. Their own poets called them liars. So Paul is encouraging Titus to appoint elders on this island. And remember, it's 160 miles long, 35 miles wide at its, at its widest point. And here now he has to minister to people who are known to be liars. So he's trying to create leaders and appoint leaders and elders so that they would be stationed in these homes and these churches, which they called in every town they wanted to set up churches, so that they could set up what they call a sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Well, doctrine is teaching. Sound is sober and healthy. That's why I was telling you last week that the word sound in the Greek is where we get hygiene from in English. And so you're, you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, it's important to have sound doctrine. Why? Because when you have sound doctrine, it gives you a sound mind, sober. And when you have a sound mind, then you have sound living. Because the mind goes to the heart, transfers to the hands, and then you're living it out. And that's what Paul was trying to tell Titus, that you need to do this, and you need to be a man of God yourself and a leader, and you now need to teach this to the generations. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Why is this so important? Because, again, the church is made of people, and we're at different stages. And sometimes the older has a different perspective than the younger which I would expect that. And the midlife, we call it, like around where I'm at, has a touch of a little bit of younger, and I'm getting a little bit older. So I have that perspective that's changing. So I'm going through every, they say that your body or your life, you go through changes every seven years. I'm at 49. I'm in my seventh change. And so I'm trying to figure that out. It's kind of uh, crisis mode, you know, identity crisis. I'm working through that. Some of you are like, yeah, Bruno, been there, done that. But still, I'm going through it. So you might have been there and done that, but I'm still working through it. And some of you are like, I'm not there yet. Well, good for you. But the thing is, I remember that. I remember the stage I was at at 35 when I used to put my Yankee gear on. I said, I'm still young. I can sport my gear. I got the Yankee emblem. I'm doing good. And then everybody, my wife's like, you're looking silly trying to be young. I remember that. And I'm like, well, and I went through a crisis. I went on eBay, picked up a jersey, got some hats, felt young, but I realized I was getting older. And some of us did that last week with the Super Bowl. We were trying to feel young again. We had some fun. But all of us going through those generational swings, it's difficult to assume that. So when we're looking at this passage in chapter 2, we have to just read that because we have to understand where verse 3 ties in with verse 2. So let me look at verse 1. Of chapter 2 Titus says, but as for you we mentioned this last week teach what accords with sound doctrine meaning communicate behavior there's NET that I think says it a little bit better than the ESV 
Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, which we talked about last week, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, which is endurance. Remember, I talked last week about upomeno. Upomeno, under, meno, meaning remain in or abide in. Remain under or abide in the, the struggle that you're going through. So he's challenging these people, these older men to do so. And I mentioned last week, I need you, you need me. I need you in my life. Well, now we come to older women. Now, I do not claim to be an expert in this area. I happen to be the other gender. So if you don't like what I'm about to share, I'm sorry. Don't beat me up later. Um, It's important. By the way, I'm not bringing this message. God is through Paul. So what's being written here is what I have to attend to. So it's important that when I attend to it, I'm not going to ignore it. And it will relate to the church that's at hand and also relates to all universal people who are Christians. So it's important for us to just encapsulate that in our minds. So here we are now, verse 3. Older women likewise. Now I need to stop there because that word likewise is an important word in the Greek. Because see, that word likewise in the Greek is a marker of similarity that approximates identity. So this marker is setting forth to say what was prior to what was been said. And it's a marker that creates an identity. It shows what's going on here with the prior verse and and this one as well. So what is the likewise? Well, in the previous verse, we see that it was listed that men were to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Likewise, older women are to do the same. And in sound in faith is sober in action. It's not faith in content. Remember, we talked about that last week. It's not an article in the Greek that says this is a content, a body of content about the faith. It's reliability and trustworthiness, action. It's saying, I'm going to be sober in my acting in faith. So what does that mean? That means that how we act should reflect our faith. Does sin reflect our faith? No, that's the opposite. God is holy. Sin is the opposite of holiness. But sound means sober. And when we're sober, we understand because our doctrine is sober. That's why doctrine and theology is important, but to the level to where we have to understand we got to put it into action. Easy to teach someone, hard to live it out. Remember I said that last week? Easy to teach someone, hard to live it out. So now we have this thing going on here. Because now in verse 2 and 3, he says, he says this, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Again, the same concept or mind that in verse 1 teaching what accords with sound doctrine. So the idea of reverential is behavior and demeanor. He's he's saying the same thing to the older men. He's saying it to the older women. Now, you and I know if we're children, we needed mama. Mama had to be, now I have to say mama because that's just how I say it in my culture, but you would say mom. I needed mom. Why? Because mom made the chocolate chip cookies. Mom made the nice meals. You didn't count on dad, either that or you were going to starve. So you needed mama. Mama had to take care of you growing up. And then, you know, she made homemade bread and she pulled it out of the oven and 
slap of butter over there and just say, Mom, hurry up, give it to me. My mother would just sit there and knead and do the bread and fold it over. I'm like, Mom, what are you making? She says, I'm making the bread for the week. And then she'd just sit there and make the bread. And I'm like, me and my brother would fight over who's going to get the first piece because the food was just awesome. But we knew Mom was there. She was there as a support. But here, reverential gives the idea of being able to sit before God and being a woman of character. Not just of the capability of taking care of a family, but a woman of character, holy reverence to God. It means this, to submit to God's will, being patient, dealing with long-suffering, as mentioned in verse 2. Submit to the word of God. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 refers to a woman who submits to her husband is likewise to submit to the word of God. She can win her husband over if, she's not, if he's not a believer. She can win him over. Or it's focusing on unity, treating people kindly, kindly with sincerity and love. Trying to take the opportunities that we have to look out and see what we can do to create unity. That's what a reverential woman does. A holy woman, a woman who looks her. It doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean they don't lose their cool. Doesn't mean that they can't yell a little bit. Uh, we all have that. We have it in our homes. Moms and dads yells and screams once in a while or more than once in a while. But later they kind of work that out. But it's not perfection. Holiness means revering God's holiness. Recognizing that we are sinners and we need God. It's actually the opposite of perfection. And what it does is it, it recognizes that we need him. So it's a woman who's dependent on God, who's asking God to change her. That's an important concept. And so I wanted to kind of, I kind of created something here. Um, I, I'm using what I call stages. So I, I kind of created five stages of an adult woman. And I, I hope this makes sense because I, I wrote out on the top of the heading, I said, the more we are informed fear increases. And you guys might say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, when a person is single, okay, here's on the, on the diagram here, Peter, if you have it there. Um, if the person is single, these, this is represented, if you see on the diagram, it's going to represent a small little area. And that small little area means that it, they don't have much fear. What I mean by that is that fear doesn't really is established because they're uninformed of what's ahead of them. They're uninformed of marriage. They're uninformed of taking care of children. They're uninformed of the sacrifice. I got a few of you doing this to me. They're uninformed of the struggles, what it goes through at the stages of a child. I was one of those. I was uninformed. When I was single, there was not much fear on me. I was risk-taking. I did whatever it took. Well, same thing with a young woman. She thinks, hey, I've got, I've got freedom here. I can do what I want. Even if I'm in college, I have some freedom. So fear is small in that way. They're not informed. But as the stages continue, when you start to become, and it's I, it's always about the I and me. Then the next stage is you get married. You find that right man, the one you always dreamed about, the one that, you know, when you look at him, you say, yeah, that's my man. The one that you just sit there and say, and he's just watching him as he walks down or walks across the room. Hey, guys. Is your lady still checking you out? I mean, when you walk and gallivant across the room and she's just kind of checking you out, are you noticing that? 
My wife won't admit that, but I catch her once in a while. And so what she does, and I'm walking down, and she's either saying, what an idiot, or she's saying, wow, that's my man. I don't know which one it is. I'm hoping it's that one. But anyway, I'm having some fun here to say that the we starts to come in, the stage of the we, because a girl finds a dream man, they have the dream children, they're thinking about a dream, dream children, a dream house, a dream coming together with their finances, they're all dreaming, and dream, and they start singing that song. But what happens is they begin with the excitement of a new family, but fear begins to increase. Why? Because as they start to dream, they start to realize, what could happen if this doesn't happen, and that doesn't happen, and this doesn't happen? What if we don't get our dream house? What if you end up becoming the worst man I've ever wanted to be with? And all these fears begin to start trickling in. That's what happens in this next stage. And they're wondering, where are we going to live? How many children are we going to have? How are we going to save money in our future? Starts to be responsible. Then you have the third, which is now you have young children. You have newborns. You have little children going through the terrible two stage. You have children that you can't say no to because they're so cute, and yet you have to set boundaries. And then sometimes you just say, that's it. I'm just going to tell them no. And you go through these stages And all of a sudden now, the young mother is working through that. They have to get the furniture. They got to get the toys. They got to get the diapers. All of a sudden now, financial responsibility increases. So the fear increases because as the stage grows, you notice that fear begins to increase out a little bit more. You know, it's funny, you know, I, when Joy and I had Maria, our first child, I don't know if she remembers this. I think she does. When she was about eight or nine months pregnant, or excuse me, when she was eight or nine months old and she had a cold and she couldn't breathe. And that was just an incredible experience for us. New parents, eight months down the road, and we didn't know what to do because she was almost to a point where she she was slowly breathing. We didn't know what to do. We called the doctors. We were crying. We were freaking out. And here... We had to get her a nebulizer. We didn't even, I didn't know, she knew, she's in the medical group, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea, I never heard of a nebulizer before. And I'm like, is she gonna be okay? Is she gonna die? I mean, what's happening to our child? And, and so the doctors, you know, comforted us and my wife comforted me, but I was freaking out a little bit because I didn't know. But after the first child and the second child, you start to experience, you, you, you do, there's some of that that's helpful but your fear increases because what if this could happen or that could happen? Or what if this happens? And in light of our world, that could be the case. You remember the commercial just in recent years or maybe in this past year, the Loves commercial, when the, f- the first child was born and the woman was interviewing the woman who apparently didn't have a PhD and she wanted her to have a PhD. And she was telling, well, I have my master's in childhood development. And she's like, well, not a PhD, huh? And she was just sitting there and they said, boy, when you have your first child, you want to have someone watching them as a PhD. And then they they switch over to the second child, and here was this young teenager, nose rings, maybe a tattoo, and saying, hey, just make sure he doesn't pull on your nose ring, and we're going out, and just gives the kid over to this teenager. So from the first child to the second child, it was like, what just happened? So all of a sudden, you, you, grow, in, you, you grow in your experience of trust, but it's just funny because even though you might gain a little trust having one child to the second child, fear still can increase with other things that are going on in your mind. 
So we get a kick out of that when we watch that, because I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Then you got your fourth stage, which is the older woman, the older mother, the older children. In this stage, and my wife and I are not there yet, in this stage, the mother becomes a seasoned pro. She's been through the first of everything, cold, sicknesses, challenges at school, friend challenges, freshman year at high school, identity crisis, bad attitudes, change of life, first breakup or not, learning how to drive, etc., etc., etc. All of these things, but now your children are slowly leaving the nest. What happens? Your fears and change and still increases. Here, you know, you start to ask those questions. Wait a minute, now what's, what's in it for me? They're leaving now. I've been through it, all these stages. I've been there for them. They needed me. I've dictated their lives. I told them what to do and how to do it. Now they don't need me. I don't have control anymore. I lost control. It's like getting the remote and someone taking it from you. You can't do anything. And then all of a sudden it's like, what do I do? How do I function? How do I move forward on this? And then all of a sudden what comes in is not just fear, fear of what the future is. What increases for an older mother, an older woman, is the struggles of inadequacy, regret, looking back, saying, maybe if I'd done things different, they would still want to live next to me and still need me. And then they go through these, these, these struggles of low self-esteem, pity, loneliness, uselessness, worthlessness. See, the bottom line is that this stage, like I mentioned earlier, at 49 now to going on 50, that when older women get to a stage when there's an empty nest, they have to deal with identity crisis. It's just a natural procession through the stage. And when they go through that and they deal with these struggles, they don't realize they have to go through that. And the uselessness and the worthlessness that's in their heart they start to project that on someone else. So when they find time, they're looking for someone else that they can control. It's not intentional. It's unintentional. It just comes like a thief in the night. You don't even realize you're in that stage. And what happens is that projection happens so subtly that you're not even aware of it until God makes you aware of it. You know, it reminds me of a show, Everybody Loves Raymond. And I'm not picking on it because it's an Italian background, but I can relate to it. Because mama never feels like she's useful enough. I mean, I had a conversation, my mother passed this past year, but I had a conversation with her for 45 minutes where she pretty much beat me up over the fact that I did not give my mother's name to one of my children. I mean, I got, I mean, I tell you, I timed it. It was 45 minutes, and I'm just sitting there on the phone, and I just said, well, she just beat me up for not giving my daughter's name Annunciata. I mean, I just sat there, and I said, well, what else am I supposed to do? And my wife goes, and you're not going to give it either. No, I'm just messing. So the thing is, and I just sat there, and I said, I know you're going to give it to me too if I try to be nice to my mama. So the thing is, is that I went through it and through it and through it, and mom just couldn't let it go. And she wanted, but the one thing I'm blessed with is that my mother and my father adored Joya. How can you not? But even though I had to take a lot from my mom who was getting older in age, I knew what she wanted. She wanted to feel useful again. She wanted to know that she was still valuable, that her name was valuable, that she could pass on the name in my family. 
And I'll, ca- I'll carry that name, even if I don't give it to my children. People will know about it. But that's what older women struggle with. And see, this is what Paul was trying to highlight here. I set this up to talk about how sometimes when we go through this, slander begins to become a part of our vernacular. It's sin, but that's what I think Paul's trying to highlight here because just in Titus, it was the same thing. It says, he goes over here in verse three, he goes, not slanderers. Now that word in the Greek is diablos. It's the word for devil. I didn't put it there, but it's the word for devil. And see, slandering, what it does is that it demeans the character of a person. When you and I are defaming people, whether it's an older woman or any age, when we put people down, we're attacking God because God created that person. And defaming them is when you call out someone or defame their character and you haven't even spent any time talking to them and asking them or getting to know them. I mean, that's the work of the enemy. That's what's happening. Paul is talking to the Cretans, but he's also talking to the people of God. Be careful when you slander that you're, used, you're, you're being a part of the work for the enemy. I mean, it's sitting right here and it's telling us very good. It's false reports, backbiting, evil speaking, falsely accusing, and double tongue. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because it occurs in the church. It's still happening here. There's still comments being made. But you, you can't move the target to someone else. Don't move the target when there's something going on in you. Don't move the target to speak that someone else is to blame. See, that's what slandering is, is when we project the blame on someone else because we feel useless, inadequate. When we don't feel like we're good enough, we want to project that. I, I've seen God teach me that. I wrote a book where God had to speak to me and challenge me as I'm writing. So the book was for me to change me about that. And that's what happens a lot in this thing. Why do people slander? Their perspective of mind, number one. Why do people slander? Perspective of mind, I do it this way, so why should others not do it that way? Secondly, it's a pattern of a behavior. We're not aware of it, unaware. Like I said, it's unintentional. We don't realize we're talking, we're talking, we're talking, and then we're putting people down and we don't even realize it. And three, we're protecting God from bad people. That's what happens in the church. We think by stopping people from doing what they should be doing because we've said they should be doing it, we think we're actually protecting God from, from his church so that bad people won't come in. And that's what slander begins to happen. It's attacking, and it's also... See, God doesn't, God doesn't want us to attack another person because then we're attacking God. And God doesn't need us to protect his church. He's doing a good job doing that. But... As leaders, as elders, as leaders in the church, we are still called to defend the faith. We don't have to protect the church, but defend the faith. God's appointed elders to shepherd the people and to protect, but we're not protecting. It's God who's doing it through us. It's not like we're doing it in our own strength, because we're not. And so it's important for us to to get a a hold of that. Real quick, I just want to share this... um, before I put this movie clip on, there was a movie called Stepmom. Two women, one was an older woman, one was a younger woman. Uh, the older woman got divorced with her husband, and now the husband is dating a younger woman, and they're going to get married. There are two children involved. 
Obviously, the mother of the children does not like that the husband is bringing in a younger, fresh, hip young woman. And so there have been some cases in the movie where the mother, who is older, Susan Sarandon, would defame, would slander the younger woman and her husband, her former husband. And it got to the point where she was even slandering the potential stepmom with her children. And in one case, the young boy said, Mommy, if you want me to hate her, I'll hate her. What example is that? This mother is trying to encourage her children to hate the potential stepmom. Now, chaotic or not, it's not what she should be doing. And so finding out, Susan Sarandon finds out that she has lymphoma and she's dying. And she asked to have a meeting with Julia Roberts, who's playing the younger woman. And here's the clip, if you have it, Peter. Here's the scene. never wanted to be a mom. Well, sharing it with you is one thing. Carrying it alone the rest of my life. Always being compared to you. You're perfect. <laughs> they worship you. I just don't want to be looking over my shoulder every day for 20 years, knowing that someone else would have done it right, done it better, the way that I can't. What do I have that you don't? You're Mother Earth incarnate. You're hip and fresh. You ride with Anne. You'll learn. You know every story, every wound, every memory. Their whole life's happiness is wrapped up in you. Every single moment. Don't you get it? Look down the road to her wedding. I'm in a room alone with her. Fitting her veil, fluffing her dress, telling her no woman has ever looked that beautiful. And my fear is that she'll be thinking I wish my mom was here. And mine is, she won't. But the truth is, she doesn't have to choose. She can have us both. Love us both. She will be a better person because of me and because of you. I have their past, and you can have their future.
See, the common factor that they both had was fear. Susan Sarandon was afraid of being forgotten. Julie Roberts was afraid of being noticed. I think that's apropos to generations. The older is afraid of being forgotten, and the younger is just afraid they'll never be recognized. And I think that that's what's going on here. Paul's trying to encourage them to connect the two. She said, I have her past, you have her future. How do you connect the two? See, this passage in verse 3 connects with verse 4. See, fear is what causes disunity. Vulnerability, transparency, confession, repentance is what brings unity together. They were repenting to one another. And that scene as well is that one of the scenes was as Susan Sarandon went berserk when Julie Roberts lost their child, her child. And then just before they started talking, Susan Sarandon says, I lost Ben one time too. She goes, no, you didn't, you're lying. She goes, no, I did. I lost her, I lost him in a supermarket. And, Susan, and Julia Roberts just looked at her and said, then why did you flip out on me? She goes, I messed up too. She came clean. And how many of us can come clean and saying, we don't have it all together. Older women, we don't have it all together. But how can we learn and grow, each one of us? And I think that's what's that's being said here. So when he goes on in verse 3 and he says, they are able to teach what is good. You are able to teach what is good. What is good? Well, what's good is sound teaching. Faithful message, one, chapter 1, verse 9. The knowledge of truth and godliness, chapter 1, verse 2. Eager to do what is good, chapter 2, verse 14. In this book, the theme of this book in Titus is doing that which is good. Faith in action leads to good works and beneficial to all, chapter 3, verse 8. It's connected with sound doctrine. When you have sound doctrine, it's a person who is moved by that sound doctrine to live, have a sound living to do what is good. What is good? Teach what is good. Slandering is not good, as we know. But teaching what is good means is to be a holy, holy character, a woman of character. That is what is good. Two, it's training. In verse 4, he goes how she, he makes that connection here. And it goes on in verse 4, and so train the young women. Don't train them to be slanders, but train them to do which is good. Being of sound doctrine being of sound teaching, faithful message of the gospel. That's training. Training in the Greek means to instruct in prudence or behavior that is becoming and shows good judgment. It doesn't show good judgment if an older woman is sitting there slandering people, but it shows great judgment when a woman is what? Goes on here and says self-control. Verse five, to be self-controlled. Self-controlled is mentioned four times in chapter two. To the older woman or man, to the younger woman or man, and to all. So it hits every generation. What does it mean to be self-controlled? Meaning watching what we say before we speak it. 
Self-controlled means that aspect of being filled by the Spirit because it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the ones listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So by living self, so how do we control all that? How do we, how do we demonstrate a, a self-controlled life? Well, we have to do those things. By living a self-controlled life, we're not living by fear, but by according to the Word of God. Sound doctrine. You know, 2 Timothy 1 says this, 7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. That means sound, sensible thinking. Sound doctrine, sound mind, sound living. It's a submissive heart that says, God, I will not react. I will respond. So one way we have to be careful is when we say, hey, did you hear about this? I have a prayer request. Did you hear about blah, 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 blah? That's not self-control. Self-control says, wait a minute. I have to first formulate what's being said and determine whether I need to go directly to the person that I hear about and not engaging in gossip, but going directly to the person. Someone this past week came directly to me. It was solved. They had an issue or concern. They came to me. It was solved. We smiled and laughed and said, no, that's not what I said. But it was good because I invite that. And I invite any of you to do that the same to each other. Always be ready to, to share that. So how is it that we demonstrate a self-controlled life. Let me just give you a few points here, just a few points. Put yourself in the person's shoes. So when someone's struggling and they're trying to blame you, put yourself in their shoes and say, I can understand them feeling that way. In fact, that makes sense. Rather than saying, how dare them think like that? And I can't believe blah, 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 blah. Instead of just saying, I can understand that. If I were in that situation, I'd feel the same way. Two, Praise the person. Don't pounce them. Praise them. Take, find something that you can praise them. Well, you know, I know they're struggling right now, but I really do appreciate the way so-and-so does this, though. I appreciate their passion and their excitement. But did you hear what they said? Uh-huh. But I still appreciate their passion and their excitement about what they want to do. You just, you don't pounce them, you praise them. Three, pray for them. Someone in the church said to me, hey, Bruno, listen, you know, uh, I heard about somebody who's really not happy right now, and they really are concerned and thinking about leaving the church. I said, do you want to know? I'm like, no. This person in this room knows who I said. I said, no, I don't want to know. Why not? I said, that's gossip. And he goes, okay. And I don't know that person. I don't want to know. I said, but you know what, dude? Let's pray. So we both got on our knees and prayed. Because you know why? I released it to God. I'm not going to let that person hijack me. If someone has a problem with me, they got to come to me. Otherwise, I'm not going to try to figure out. You got what I'm saying? I'm not going to figure out. I'm not going to hold that weight. That's not my weight to hold. I give it to God. I don't want to hear it. Why? Because that's not what I'm called for. I give it to Jesus. He says, lay it down at his feet. I lay it down at his feet. Boy, I, left, I lived free after that. Even though when I taught that, that person, they were like, wow, that was cool. And so that's important for us to do that. So when we're trusting God, then it's all of a sudden like, how do we live that life? I want to encourage you older women, because there's a cool passage in 1 Peter that talks about all this, just to, just to finish up here. 1 Peter chapter 3. I think, Peter, you have that, right? 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter? Okay. All right, I just want to make sure. <laughs> 
It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We know in Titus that these were women who were married and had children because they were supposed to train them. It says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they, be, they may be won without a word by conduct of their wives. So here goes the conduct, the behavior. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's reverent in another verse. And it goes on, it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of a gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Watch this now. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. It didn't say Sarah obeyed all the time, but for, for, for the whole part she did. Calling him Lord... And you who are her children, because even in Isaiah 51, 2, it says that Sarah was the mother of all God's people in the old covenant. And as you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Do good and do not fear. What's good? Self-controlled lives. Do not fear. Submission is what eliminates fear. I could allow that situation to hijack me, but I said, no, I won't fear, I submit. And I want to encourage you that a holy, reverent woman, an older woman, is one who submits, one who is self-controlled, one who is, who is submitting every part, not, not running around trying to control their lives or the lives of others. You know, I know it's tough for a woman. I, I understand some of this. I'm not a woman, but I can understand for having a mom and aunts and other women that I've had in my life, you for years have tried to control the lives of your ch children, and it's hard to let it go. I mean, all these years you've been just working at it, and now all of a sudden now you have to let it go. And it's like, wow, just let it go? But it's not something God's saying to just let go. It's a process, and it takes submission. It takes surrendering. It takes an opportunity to say, God, work in me. I want to encourage you, older women, we need you. I lost my mom, but there's a few people in my life who are moms to me. I have my mother-in-law. I have a woman named Joanne Colucci who's been a mom to me. I had a woman who led me to the, to, to the Lord who I called her mom. There were other women in my lives. We need you. And you need us. You need a little bit of vibrance. You need a little smile. You need a little excitement. Because I know it's tough sometimes to move forward. So I want to encourage you. We need you. You need us. Take a moment this week and say, how can you serve the Lord and be women of reverential fear, not fearing what's next and trusting God? As the guys are coming up, I want to take a moment and pray for you. It's not Mother's Day, but I still want to pray for you and give you that opportunity. But um, just want to encourage you. You can be used of God even in an older state. There's a woman here who's 91 years old, and I tease my wife all the time. She's my girlfriend. So, you know, we still need you. All right? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for reminding us how important it is for us today. I thank you for my mom. Although she has passed on in the last nine months back in April, you bless me with a wonderful mom who loved me deeply, but you bless me with a mother-in-law who's there for me if I ever need her, and other women in the faith who've been there. 
And Lord, I can't imagine what they go through when they have to manage the lives of their children and their husband and now feel as though they're feeling useless or they don't feel like they're a part of anything. God, I pray that you would minister to them today and encourage them and let them know that they're still useful. We need them in the church. We need them to be that holy, reverent woman so they can minister to the younger. And as we talk about that next week, we're going to mention it again. We need that, that woman who's there as a strong structure for us, one who can be there. We need that woman who's going to say, it's going to be okay. We need that older woman who can build us up and pray for us and encourage us. Lord, the greatest ministry in the church is to pray. I sure can use a lot of women in this church. We all can as leaders, as a people. The people of the church can use the older women to get there and just be in prayer. But we can use them too to encourage us. So bless them today, Lord. Bless them in a mighty way. Thank you for them. Thank you for these moments we had together today. And pray that we would walk out of here today refreshed and renewed, knowing that we can still be useful no matter what part of the stage we are in our lives or what gender or generation we're in. We need you, God. And, they, and we need you to lead us in Jesus' name.